Exodus chapter 32. It's the story of the golden calf. We hear about um, the people of Israel. They've been slaves in Egypt. And Moses went to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. And he led them out of Egypt being chased by the Egyptians. The Lord led them through the Red Sea. The sea miraculously parted. And they went through on dry ground. And the sea came and swept away the Egyptian army. The superpower of the day was defeated. They went to Sinai where the the law was given to Moses up the mountain. And we pick up the story here, the people are getting a little bit impatient. They don't know what's happened to Moses. He's been gone, he's been gone for a while. Right, I better just find it, otherwise I'm not going to be able to read it to you. Exodus chapter 32, beginning at verse 1. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain... They gathered round Aaron, who's his brother, and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt, have become corrupt. They've been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They've bound down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I'll make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord, his God. Lord, he said, Why should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, it is with the evil intent that he brought them out, to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people 
the disaster he had threatened. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, just uh, if we could have the screen on there, Judith, that'd be great. Oh, sorry. My fault. I pushed a button that I shouldn't have. Just as we think about that passage, as we prepare ourselves, let's just pray to the Lord. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for us gathered here. We trust that you can speak to us through it. We pray that you do just that now. We ask that you open your word to our hearts and that you open our hearts to your word. And we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I wonder, did you vote this week? Did you use your democratic right to elect or not our new mayor, Boris Johnson? Well, statistics show that across the nation, 68% of people didn't bother. 68% of the people around the country didn't bother to vote. 62% in London. Just under two-thirds of all Londoners didn't bother to go down the road to vote. Why should we vote? What difference does it make anyway? Are politicians all the same? Does it make any difference to my life? These are the questions that people may be asking. Maybe we've lost our faith in politics. Maybe we've lost our faith in the system. I wonder if it's the same with our prayer. And as we're um, embarking as a church family on a series on prayer, we start off by asking the question, why do we pray? Why do we bother to pray? Does it make any difference at all? And in particular today, why do we intercede? Intercede. To intercede means to, uh, to ask God for things on behalf of somebody else. It's not a prayer for me. It's a prayer on behalf of somebody else. An individual, maybe a nation, We might pray for Burma, for its freedom at this point. We may may pray for peace in the Sudan. We may pray for events, for the Olympics. We may pray broader for, for families, as we've done today. This is all intercession. But why should we bother? Is it just a waste of time? Does it make any difference at all? Isn't God just going to do what God wants anyway, if God exists? If God is there, is God really interested in what I have to say? I had a friend called Bernsey that I used to work with when I was an engineer up in the northeast of England. He was a Geordie, and he referred to all Christians as God-botherers. He said, I've come in on a Monday, and he said, well, what did you do over the weekend? I said, I went to church. He said, oh, you haven't been bothering God, have you? He's not interested, you know. Is God interested in what I have to say, in what you have to say? Is there any point in interceding in these ways? 
Well, so we come to the extraordinary story of Moses. As I've mentioned before, here he is. He's brought the people out of Egypt across the Red Sea. There's been a spectacular escape. We were just, we were just singing, at your name, the mountains tremble. And the mountain of Sinai did tremble when Moses went up to receive the, uh, the, the law that was given to him. The seas quake. And the seas had separated. There had been water produced out of a rock. And bread had fallen from heaven. Such amazing miracles. And now this. The people had grown impatient. And they had asked Aaron to make for them an idol. A calf. They'd had enough of this invisible God. And they wanted something tangible. They made a little calf. And they called that calf by the name of the Lord. They said, this is Yahweh. Here he is. This little idol that we've made with our earrings. And the Lord was enraged at this. That they should substitute his glory, his power, his presence with them for an inanimate golden object. And he declared that he was going to wipe the slate clean with this people and start afresh with Moses. It was a setback to his plan of salvation that started with Abraham, but he could make a new start with Moses. And Moses here for us is the model of an intercessor, a model prayer. He came to God and stood in that represented before God the people. God, if you, rec- if you, if you uh, see in the passage there in Exodus, God is saying, I'm going to destroy your people. And Moses says, no, they're your people. You brought them out. You made the promise to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Moses stands in the gap on behalf of the people and intervenes on their behalf. That's what intercession is. It just means to intervene. There's a story in, in uh, Genesis of Abraham wanting to buy a field from a bunch of people. And he said to some of the people, can you go and intervene with the guy who owns the field so he'll sell it to me? And the word for intervene there is the same as intercede. Will you intercede with that person on my behalf? It just means to lobby, to go and ask them for something. Moses here is the model intercessor intervening on Israel's behalf. He goes to God and says, says don't destroy them and this the remarkable thing in this passage is that it says that God changes his mind have you ever thought that your prayer might change God's mind what does it mean that God can change his mind if God is all-knowing the whole of history is before him is it true that God can change his mind in the way that I would change my mind about an important decision? Well, the answer that the Old Testament scriptures tell us is yes and no. God does change his mind, but on the other hand, no, he doesn't change his mind. What do I mean by that? Well, let's have a look at four stories in the Old Testament. We start off with Jonah. Jonah, we remember, was swallowed up by a whale he surfed into Nineveh, the, the capital of, God's, uh, of Israel's enemies. 
and was told by the Lord to um, tell them that they were going to be destroyed, that the Lord's anger was burning against them. And the people heard the message, and we hear that in the book of Jonah that they repented. They said sorry to God for all of the ways that they had um, been against him. And, um, and Jonah wasn't very happy about that because they were Israel's enemies. But nevertheless, the Lord changed his mind and didn't bring the destruction that he said that he would. Second story. Here's Abraham. Got his hands lifted up, uh, looking at a starry sky because the promise to Abraham was that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And Abraham, in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, the Lord had, had made the amazing, um, uh, amazing claim that he was going to share what he was about to do with Sodom and Gomorrah with Abraham. He told Abraham, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because of their great sin against me. Hello. You've got a tissue. <laughs> I think he's born for the stage. <laughs> um, what did Abraham do about Sodom and Gomorrah? He had relatives living in the town, so he decided, right, I'm going to ask God to have mercy on Sodom and Gomorrah. And so he goes into this amazing story of bargaining with God. He said, Lord, if there are 50 people in Sodom, who are righteous, are you still going to destroy it? And the Lord said, well, no, if there are 50 righteous people in the town, I won't destroy it. And then Abraham said, fine, great, stake in the ground. Now, let's say five of those people weren't, didn't happen to be around that weekend. Are you going to destroy the town just because those five people were missing? And the Lord says, okay. For 45 people, I won't destroy the town. 45 righteous people in the town, I'm not going to destroy it. And Moses then gets a bit bolder. Okay, well, what about 40 people? What about 30 people? What about 20 people? How about if there are just 10 people? About this number of people here. If there are just 10 people in the whole of Sodom who are righteous... Are you still going to destroy the town? And the Lord says, okay, fine. If there are 10 people in Sodom that are righteous, I won't destroy it. But the story pans out that there weren't even 10 righteous people in the town. In fact, um, they get involved in some pretty hideous things. And so the town, in the end, is destroyed. But do you see how the Lord worked with Abraham? He was pliable in what he intended to do by involving Abraham in his plans. So in this sense, it seems that the Lord is willing to change his mind when we pray. But the flip side is the story of Balaam, and Balaam had a donkey. Balaam uh, was a prophet in the Old Testament times when the people of Israel were quite a mighty people at this stage, and they were cruising around uh, winning victories over the local uh, peoples around them. And so the king of, of Moab, a guy called Balak, asked Balaam, as a prophet, to go and put a curse on these people of Israel. 
to, so that his people, the Moabites, would um, be, be safe. And so Balaam goes on his donkey to go and see Balak. And the Lord puts in the way of the donkey uh, an angel to stop him getting through. An angel with a big sword. Yeah, a big sword. And um, the, the donkey stops. And so Balaam hits his donkey. And uh, the donkey starts again, but then the angel appears again. And the donkey goes off the road to go round the angel. And Balaam hits his donkey again because he can't see the angel. And then, Bal- then the, the angel appears again in front of the donkey and he scrapes up against a, a wall and he scrapes Balaam's foot against the wall. And so Balaam's laying into the donkey with his stick. And the Lord, we hear, opens the donkey's mouth. And so the long tradition of speaking donkeys is born. And the donkey says, in the voice of Eddie Murphy, which I'm not going to try, <laughs> what have I ever done against you? <laughs> Why are you hitting me with that stick? And, uh, and Balaam's eyes are open, and he can suddenly see the angel of the Lord standing behind him. And he says, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have hit you. Um, I've sinned against the Lord. What do you want me to do? And the Lord says to Balaam, Go and tell Balak that you can't curse the people of Israel because I'm on their side. But Balak's quite persistent. He keeps going to Balaam, come on, curse these people for me. And so what does Balaam say to him? He says, God is not human that he should lie. He's not a human being that he should change his mind. He's not a human being that he should change his mind. So Balaam seems to be saying that God doesn't change his mind. Hmm. Is that a contradiction? Similarly, in the story of Saul, here's Saul grabbing hold of the coattails of the prophet Samuel because Samuel has just told him that because Saul was disobedient to God, that he was no longer going to be king and that David would be king in his place. And Saul is, um, is overwhelmed with grief at this, and he grabs hold of Samuel's coattails and says, please with the Lord for me. And he rips his coat as he's doing it. And Samuel says to him, the kingdom will be ripped away from you because of your disobedience. And he says to Saul, he who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind. He's not a human being that he should change his mind. Notice the similarity in the the language between those two passages. So on the one hand, we see that God does change his mind. On the other hand, it seems that God doesn't change his mind. Is this a contradiction in our Old Testament readings here? Well, it's not actually what we would call a contradiction. It's what... Uh, theologians would call a paradox. A paradox. Something that seems to be a contradiction in terms, but actually that there's truth in it. We have to hold these two things in tension. On the one hand, God can change his mind, but in the other hand, he doesn't. Or at least, he doesn't change his mind just like a human being does, like I would. He's not fickle. He's not as the the Greeks believed or the Romans believed 
like a god who, who plays a game of dice and just decides, right, I'm going to have fun with these people and mess with their lives. God, we believe, is not like that. He doesn't change his mind like that. But he does, in some situations, change his mind uh, because his nature is to do so. So what can we learn about God and his purposes as we look at intercession? We've got God, the means, and the ends. Now the world would say, wouldn't it, that the ends justify the means. You get, you've got an end point that you're aiming for and you take whatever path you can to get there. The ends justify the means. But this is not the way of God. With the way of God, the ends and the means are tied up together. They're the, they're, they belong together. We believe, according to the Psalms, that God is loving, he's just, he's righteous, and he's faithful all the time. God is good all the time. He's loving, just, righteous, and faithful. His ends, his purpose, is salvation. If you were to read Isaiah 61, the Lord says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, healing for the sick, freedom for those in captivity. These are the things that the Lord aims for in our life. Salvation. Good news, healing, freedom, favor, justice, comfort, beauty, and so on. What are the means that God puts into place to bring about these ends, these purposes? Well, into this world comes Jesus. He comes out of the desert, having been tempted by Satan. He turns up at the synagogue and reads this passage from Isaiah. And he says, today, in your hearing, these words are fulfilled. Because God, in Jesus, has joined in with our story. He's become the means to God's ends on our behalf. God is not the kind of God to stand away uh, shocked by the mess that we've made of this world. God, in Jesus, shows that he gets his hands dirty he gets involved. He participates in our life to bring about the salvation purposes of God. But Jesus, we hear, is also an intercessor. He prayed for us in his time in earth. We saw that in the Gospels, he'd get up in the early, to, uh, in the early hours to pray, go up a mountain, and he taught his disciples to pray. Ask, he said. Seek. Knock. Which of you, though you're sinful, would give your child a rock when they ask for a piece of bread? How much more will your Father in heaven, who loves you, give good things to you when you ask? Jesus modeled intercession for us, and we hear in the book of Hebrews that he's at the Father's side, still praying, still interceding on our behalf. Jesus is the intercessor. And then Jesus sends the Spirit to us. 
in the book of Romans, we hear that the Spirit intercedes in our heart with groans that we don't understand. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit works in us to help us to pray, to draw prayer out of us, interceding with us. This picture of the Trinity is a Father, Son, and Holy Spirit engaged in a conversation of intercession. Talking about the needs of the world, talking about God's loving purposes, getting involved in that world. And this is a conversation we believe that we're now invited into. Jesus intercedes for us. He shows us how to intercede. And the Spirit works with us to help us to intercede. We're invited into this conversation of God, which is called intercession. So why should we intercede? Because it's the way in which we join in, we participate in the plans of God. We become, we become part of the means to God's ends. And in so doing, we find that we ourselves experience healing. We experience a new sense of freedom. We, become, we see beauty in our lives. We see joy released in our lives. We see peace coming out. And so God's loving purposes in our lives are freed up as we pray and intercede. Jesus invites us to intercede. He shows us how to intercede. He even joins in with us along with the Spirit. This is why we intercede. So enough of the theory. Just two very quick tips for beginners. If, you're, if you read any books on intercession, you'll find that every author starts off by saying, I'm just a beginner at this. So I'm joining them in saying that I'm just a beginner at this too. In fact, I'm not very good at intercession. So these tips are really for me as much as they are for you. The first tip, and this is, I'm speaking to myself, if you're not very good at praying for other people, what you do is you put yourself in the place of intercession. You go to where it's going on. That might be coming to church, joining with the, joining with the people as Tim leads us in, in intercession. We can be gathered together uh, in those prayers as we gather corporately. might mean joining a house group midweek um, that meets in people's homes. It might mean praying with two friends in a triplet. It might mean coming along to our prayer meeting at 7 o'clock on a Thursday morning in Sullivan Hall, which meets every, every Thursday. You put yourself in the place of intercession. Go to where it's going on. That's the first point. Second one is to do with our hearts. If you feel that the Lord is saying to you, you should be interceding more, but you really don't feel like it, then the thing to do is to pray for a heart of compassion. That the Lord would move in your heart to make your heart look like his. The way your heart was meant to be. To be a heart that is open to the needs around you. A heart of flesh, not a heart of stone. 
And so my second tip is this. Pray for a heart of compassion and the Lord will get you interceding because you'll be urging him to move in this world with mercy and grace. Amen. I'm now going to invite the band to come back up.